Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. This is Jim Laskowski, and you are listening to the Director's Club Podcast, episode 94. Joining me is one of my favorite podcasters out there, formerly of the Critical Mass cast, um, and sporadically hosting a great show that I made a cameo on called The Soundtrack of Your Life. Welcome, finally, to the show, Corey Pierce. Hello. Hello. Yes, very sporadic as of late. It's been um, after both very good and very bad things happening this summer. And um, but hopefully back in action within the next couple weeks. Yeah, it's definitely been that kind of summer. <laughs> it's been a roller yeah. coaster. But um, yeah, weirdly enough, August is just the worst month of the year for me when it comes to like anxiety because it's always for me largely triggered by weather. Um, but up here in Toronto, it's been like the mildest. Uh, August, I can remember in several years, it's been like at nighttime, it feels like it's October. Yeah. And I am not going to complain <laughs> when um, when the alternative is to not breathe. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it's back in the 90s over here for a while. But oh, yeah. hopefully, it's it's looking to end by next week. I just, I'm yeah. like, come on, it's, it's September. Let's be done yeah. with it already. Well, just so, even like, even if it's bad in September, uh, the fact that it's actually September, there's like a mental sort of block you can put on it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. So like, yeah. Um, so it's not the same, quite frankly. But yeah. Well. It's like post-Labor Day. I'm like, okay, now we can start breathing again. So the reason why I'm excited to have you on the show is that we have a very similar sense of humor from what I gather. And I've been wanting to try doing a comedy director for a while now. It's, it's kind of a tense. Uh, tense? as kind of a test. Yeah. And by that, I mean, I'm curious how this is going to go, because in the past, Patrick and I were always hesitant to do, like, a Mel Brooks or a Zucker Brothers because we feared like the conversation was just essentially going to be, well, that scene was funny, and that joke was funny, and oh, I love that gag, and blah, 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 blah. So There's not really mise-en-scene to discuss with comedy. Really. Yeah, exactly, but it is it is an art, and it's, it's something that I have long since admired, way back when my dad would play me Steve Martin comedy records as a kid, and... Obviously, I laughed, and I grew up appreciating Richard Pryor, um, mostly as at first as a, as a as a comic actor in goofy movies. Um, but yeah, I just I, we're going to talk about David Wayne, and I'm pretty stoked about it because, as most of the listeners know by now, Wet Hot American Summer, quite possibly my favorite comedy of all time, and we'll get to exactly why in a little while. Um, but yeah, like I said, I'm I'm curious to see how this is going to go because even like pre- preliminary research, it's not like I can sort of Google David Wayne essay analysis or look under Google Scholar for like film um, papers written about him. <laughs> Quite frankly, I'm happy to do a show where I don't even feel tempted to do any research. In yeah, 
<laughs> I was just it was just funny because like a lot of directors I might just you know glance at something off of senses of cinema or a couple of blogs or just just to like see what other people are saying not to necessarily like copy and paste but just to get an impression of like what does this person think of this and that and yeah it's it's more just you know something I'm used to doing having gone through college of making sure I know what I'm talking about and at least having bullet points for a presentation yeah um to me but, it's like what the hell does this person find funny why and how did we get there yeah <laughs> that's what I'm excited to learn about um, because you know this show it's sort of this evolving thing too because unexpectedly when Patrick and I did our last bonus episode together towards the end of the episode it became this like weird Mark Marin thing where we were sort of analyzing why the hell are we watching all these movies anyway and what does it all mean psychologically <laughs> and yeah. it became a little bit like you know that Pat Patton Oswalt book that he recently oh, put out yeah yeah I read that yeah yeah so it was it was interesting and I'm just wondering you know what why does David Wayne work so well and we're gonna get to that in a little bit um. But yeah, I do want to mention a couple of things at the top here. One being, um, I want to thank, I want to thank you, Corey, because I recall you tweeting at me um, alongside another podcast by the name of the Cine Realists. They're a great movie review podcast hosted by Zach and James. Um, of course, they love to make lists and review <laughs> movies and have general discussion, which I enjoy. But the highlight for me are the games episodes because they spend basically an hour as, you know, that they create their own sort of movie game show. And nearly every time I'm able to answer questions that they themselves can't seem to answer, so... It, maybe it's just an ego thing, like I feel smarter for a little while. Yeah. Um, but really, the, Zach and James are really cool guys. They they have a great dynamic. Um, they were nice enough to give me a shout-out on their show, so I wanted to return the favor. Um, I think people should listen to the Cine Realists. I think it's hard to say, mm. but <laughs> I enjoy, I enjoy yeah. their show quite a bit. James, quality dude. I mean, I've known about his various podcasts casting and debating back like over a decade at wow. this point and uh, um, the games thing isn't 100% new with him I think that they would do trivia stuff on uh, his other show uh, which still happens intermittently uh, film rot um, and uh, they even had like weird things that they would do um, there was like a point like seven or eight years ago where they made a thing called movie webmaster big <laughs> brother where they just got like so it would be like Devin Faraci and Harry Knowles and Sean Dwyer and all these other people Whoa. And, and put them in a house to sort of, and they would like wrote fan fiction of how they were going to interact with each other <laughs> and vote each other out. And it was just like, what the hell is going on here? But, uh, <laughs> um, and I, I can only imagine how, how weird it must be now. Cause I imagine a lot of those sites have just kind of either died or people have alienated each other completely different ways. And, picturing who's going to get along with you it's just it's just weird I, I would like to see something like that with like stand-up comedians given or, or um given some of the stuff like the little wars going on back and forth on twitter uh as of late but uh oh yeah. man yeah let's get 
Let's get Louie and Mark Marin and Michael Ian Black in a room. No. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I would put uh, shove Kurt Metzger in that room and Jim Jeffries in that room because, Oof. you know, you need some real shit disturbers. Yeah. And uh, they're going to bring it. So. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I think people could probably write their own fan fiction version if I... Well, I'm I'm pretty much I'm pretty much set on heading out to Flyway this year to um, hang out with Matt, uh, James, Andrew, and Angela, and whoever else might show up. So maybe somebody could uh, come up with a short story about what's going to happen there, because <laughs> uh, that's that's going to be interesting. And I was just listening to the latest High and Low Brown. Matt sort of mentioned, yeah, we're trying to get Jim to come out, so. If he's, uh, you know, shouting me out on his podcast too, I think I have to. Jim, do you listen to every podcast on the internet? Um, yes. All right. It's gotten to the point where I've I listen to more podcasts than music, and I think it's more of just like I'm loyal. Once I start listening oh, to something, okay. I I I've subscribed to it, and I try and stick with it till the end. You know what really sucks though is when you. Like when something like uh, fades and you start to let it go, <laughs> and then you still go back once in a while, and it's just kind of very, very weird. I mean, I, I, I in the early days of me listening to podcasts, I just listen to Doug Loves Movies all the time. Oh god, and yeah. There came a point where it became like, wow, Doug doesn't really love movies. Nope. <laughs> and then, uh, then Doug doesn't even talk about movies. And uh, at JFL last year, I saw a live taping, and it was like one of the most brutal, like unfunniest, slowest hours. Oh, I couldn't have gotten out of there fast enough. And he, and even his guests were like still pretty good guests, but just I don't know. I guess he just, has he just rubs like me the wrong phone. way. I don't know. Yeah, um, he's a lazy stoner. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and and it, and it's and uh, I don't know. He can only count on Sam Levine to keep things going <laughs> for so long before it doesn't work anymore. But uh, enough about dissing other podcasters. Um, yeah, that happens. It's Doug Benson has been called out before on the show, and I'm always... I don't think he'll ever listen, so I'm not worried. <laughs> anyway, uh, I also wanted to briefly mention the passing of Wes Craven. I, I brought it up very um, very quickly on the last Pop Culture Club um, episode I did because I literally just found out as I was editing that episode, so I really just you know, did a few minutes on it, and I just wanted to have a little dialogue with you. Um, we did a whole episode on Wes Craven, obviously, and talked about most of his films, and we said back then that, you know, he runs hot and cold, but there were times when he just tapped into the horror movie Zeitgeist, especially with, with Scream, which remains my favorite of his to date. Um, I don't know how much of a horror guy you are, but did Craven's Not films much meant... at all. Not well, at all? And honestly, like, Wes Craven means, like, almost next to nothing to me. Um, wow. What's and, that like? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I was just, um different ways that you could look at it I mean on one hand I think of myself as a complete pussy when it comes to horror movies and I just generally kind of avoid them and because I'll either be too scared and I just don't like the experience but then other times it's like since 
I assume I won't like the experience. I'll build up the idea that I might be really, really horrified watching something because of all the mm. hype. And then I'll watch it, and then I find that it's not scary at all. And then I'm a little disappointed. So I kind of um, get it from both ends. And there'll be like other ones, like from recently, like I really liked uh, It Follows and The Baba Duke. Um, oh, but in, in neither case, uh, I never, I didn't find either of them actually that scary, which is weird considering, you know, that I would be scared of everything. And I mean, I was watching like The Conjuring like a year and a half ago. And for the first little while, I was like actually like horrified, like it was hitting all my, all my buttons. And then it kind of does one thing, like a little, like it reaches too far when they were showing like a, like uh, archival footage, like the kind of archival footage to be like, hey, guess what? This archival footage proves without a doubt that God exists. <laughs> and um, and then it's just like, okay, you just lost me entirely. You know, like you 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 just blew it. And and then I'm not scared about anything anymore. Um, and uh, that's just how it is with like things that are scary. Like I, I prefer something that's either going to have like body horror like a Cronenberg kind of thing sure or I want uh, something that's like absurd so like I think the obvious example would be like you know like Evil Dead um, so so I, I don't know I mean I I never I've like I've literally never watched a full Friday the 13th movie I've seen two of the screen movies and they're fine um, I've seen one Friday. Oh yeah, I've seen no Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Oh wow! I've seen one Friday the Thirteenth movie. Uh, I've watched one Halloween movie, and I'm a big John Carpenter fan, but I don't really care for Halloween. And uh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, every now and then you surprise me, which is great. <laughs> like you, your take on Drive to this day was like, oh my god, will this? Will we get along? But. <laughs> Then I read your reviews on Sarah Polly's films, and then David Wayne. I'm like, okay, I can I can easily give this guy a big hug after all. Uh, I tell you, just a weird sidebar about Drive is um, <laughs> sure. yeah. uh, well, thing is, my Letterbox review of Drive is like, I don't want to necessarily say legendary, but it's one of the most liked reviews on that entire site mm-hmm. still. Um, and I like every day I see like a new their message or comment or one thing or another on it and it's been spread around the internet and but the thing is it's gotten to the point though that people assume that i hate drive way more than i do now at this point like it's become a thing like that i'm known for it that's taken all the kind of joy or and or anger of hating it away from me you know what i mean and so around a week after nikki and i got married in july we come home and someone had pushed a blu-ray copy of drive through our our door no note (laughs) No package, just a copy of Drive. They're on my, they're on my floor. I'm like, okay, this is a practical joke. And someone actually had to literally come to my house to do it. And um, uh, it was, and I and I nobody took credit for it, and still no one has taken credit for it. Um, one of my guests at the wedding signed a card uh, as to a real human being and a real hero. <laughs> so I suspect it was him, but um, he's not taking credit for it. And I think he's the kind of person who would take credit for it if he did do it. So. It's just been that's just weird, but I don't know the jokes on them. I mean, uh, I've kept it my wall on my wall here. I'm gonna keep that thing forever. It's sitting there, and uh, yeah, you didn't hurt my feelings by sending me a copy of Drive, whoever you were. I'm sure they're listening. <laughs> um, it, maybe it was you. 
you know, it, it could have been, but um, I, I have yet to cross the border. So, but one of these days. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's crazy. But, um, yeah, I think... Um, I think what I'll do, too, is obviously once October rolls around, and um, I'm, prob- I'm probably going to be doing a couple... Obviously, for October, I'm going to be doing a couple of horror directors. Um, it's looking like Stuart Gordon and Toby Hooper for October, and I might just elaborate a little bit more on, on Wes. I mean, I think at this point there's plenty of retrospectives. A lot of people have shared their thoughts and feelings on his work, and um, I can easily say that you know scream and nightmare on elm street were very important films for me in 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 terms of how my taste was formulated and how movies just had an insane visceral effect uh in a way i was not prepared for especially when you sneak down to your parents basement um and they were sound sleepers and you turn on the tv and you watch something randomly and you know the next thing you know you're you're watching a scene that takes place in a school with a body bag being dragged um and you know Freddy Krueger and his first appearance in a boiler room um and then not being able to sleep because of certain images that Craven is responsible for and I I for one credit him and give him kudos for that because that's something, you know. A, a lot of people say that like comedy is really hard to do because it's it, one of the, it, it's hard, it's easier to make somebody cry than it is to make somebody laugh, and um, it's very subjective what people find scary. Like there are plenty of people out there who don't think Blair Witch Project is scary. I do, um, <laughs> and same goes with you know somebody who'd watch Nightmare on Elm Street today. They might just go eh. Not that scary, but back then for me at an impressionable age, it 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 has it has a lot of nostalgia for me. But it's really something that certain images I still see and I still remember what it was like seeing them for the first time because I was just like I'd never seen anything like that before. Um, but nowadays I'm too desensitized. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean I'll I'll definitely talk about them more. Um, in the in the month of October and bring up any rewatches that I do of of his filmography and stuff but uh you know it's funny because like when you sent me your list of records um your favorite records of 1995 and seeing a lot of them were um you know metal I just assumed yeah. well clearly this guy is a horror movie freak he's got Rob um, Zombie on his list well no I I have Rob Zombie's movies are pieces of shit in my yes, opinion thank but, um, you. Um, when I was in high school, I mean, like my friends and I, we like my at least my metal friends because there's always a couple different cliques, whatever. I was kind of a floater overall. Um, mm-hmm. We would have like sleepovers with, with like where we would just sort of trade albums and like record them onto tapes for each other, so we didn't have to, you know, so we could diversify. You know what I mean? We divided and conquered with our with our music collections, and we would just watch like horror movies all night. So I mean, I saw a lot of horror movies in the '90s, and yep. I. You know, I I wouldn't say I was necessarily desensitized to them. I just kind of learned that I didn't really care. <laughs> so, and to me, like, uh, I think whatever people really kind of get specifically out of horror movies, I kind of like that sort of either the violence or the feeling of it. Um, I preferred maybe in musical form, 
And so, I mean, in this sort of day and age when we're kind of calling out bands for like crazy violent or misogynist lyrics and stuff like that, like, I'll, and I'll be like sensitive and I'll notice like, oh, that lyric on that new uh, Dr. Dre song with Eminem, that's just horrible. That's just horrible. But then I'll remember like, you had a copy of a Cannibal Corpse album with a song called In Trails Drift from the Virgin Cut, Corey. <laughs> and, and these are just the kind of things that are out there. And I guess there might be just, it's like, maybe it's just like when there's obscene, over the top cartoonish violence, I think of it differently than something that's kind of, you know, something I can picture being like an everyday kind of idea yeah. or, or, or problems or, you know, so. You'd probably uh, find something like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer um, very effective, whereas Nightmare on Elm Street, especially the sequels, would be very cartoonish, and you'd kind of just laugh at it or shrug it off entirely. Yeah. But well, there, there's so many like, realistic I horror like movies. A cartoonish, like, splatter movie like Ricky O, the story of Ricky. You know, that's my idea of a good story <laughs> time, you know? Like, yeah. So to me, like, Cannibal Corpse or... There are other bands like it that really kind of went over the top as far as that. Like, they're you only need like one record from them because they're very one note and there's no real growth in them. But um, beyond that, I mean, a lot of European metal, on the other hand, is very kind of more fantasy driven. So to me, like, you're like people think of metal as just being like aggressive or whatever, but a lot of European metal to me is like watching Lord of the Rings. Like, to me, it has more in common with Led Zeppelin than it does with. Um, <laughs> you know, Slayer. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, no, totally. Yeah, um, and it's North American stuff that maintains a lot of kind of aggression and might have kind of political overtones that are, may or may not be so good. But um, and I don't really care as much still to this day as much for North American metal music for that reason. You know, it just doesn't. Um, it's a little too sophomoric. They're the bands that scream. Yeah, motherfucker, let's motherfucking go. This next motherfucker, you know, like, and I just kind of turned off by that um, not because I'm approved when it comes to swearing but I just like I don't like the idea that what I'm listening to is stupid <laughs> you know uh, yeah yeah and unfortunately a lot of musicians are just kind of stupid but uh, yeah. um, I think the only two bands that I would classify as metal that I've gotten into recently are Mastodon and Swans Oh yeah. Well, Swans even. That's just the weird thing recently when it comes to like metal over the last six or seven years is that, um, and metal fans are snobs just as sure. much as like, indies. There's indie snobs and punk snobs, but metal snobs don't think they're snobs and they totally are. Uh, but I mean, like Mastodon, like members of Mastodon, they claim that they like uh, the one guy with the big beard, like the singer of the band, mm-hmm. like says that he hates heavy metal. You know. <laughs> And okay. Swans to me aren't really a metal band. They're kind of a legendary, like post, like a heavier post rock band. And a lot of the mm. bands that uh, like Pitchfork kind of really approve of, um, like uh, Death Heaven, are technically a black metal band. But to me, they're yeah. they're what makes Pitchfork like them is their post rock sensibilities. And same thing with some of the other bands like uh, Agalock or. Uh, Alcast or, or some of these other ones that are out there like the North American sort of extreme metal and black metal is not really like they don't have long hair and corpse paint they look like members of of you know pavement <laughs> so uh, <sighs> you know so uh, the kind of pitchfork approved metal I can understand why like like at the end of the year like Death Heaven will be like on critics lists and, and indie kids might congratulate themselves for liking a metal band 
But meanwhile, you'll go over to like Brave Words and Bloody Knuckles magazine, and they don't even have like Death Heaven in their top twenty or something. You know, it's just you know they're not really listening to each other. There's not and there's not really a true kind of overlap about of what they're really interested in. And I think only a few bands like ISIS. Um, oh really yeah, ISIS. I managed like that. to have uh, have that kind of overlap successfully. Yeah, I guess I like the overlap bands. <laughs> because I, I even think when I went to South by Southwest one year, I saw this band, Jucifer, and, uh, like, I didn't know what they were. I was like, it's got a female lead singer, but she's mostly screaming, and I guess it's considered death metal. It was just, like, an otherworldly kind of metal. And yeah. I had no idea how to classify it at the time, but I was like, this is so visceral and intense, I love it. Um, but... There, are, there's so much metal that I, I can't connect with, and mostly it's just because of the vocals. Um, you kind of got. It's hard when you, even when you're like a teenager, because I was force feeding some of it at the start, to be honest, to fit in with my my friends or whatever who got there first. But you know, I adapted it like caviar or something. It's kind of like trying to force yourself with the Captain B part. Oh but, yeah, uh, that. <laughs> you know. But once you once you get there, you're you're in. You know, like. If you're a Slayer fan when you're 14, you're going to be a Slayer fan for the rest of your life. It's just one of those things that doesn't go away, I think. And I think that's why like punk fans and metal fans are way more loyal than like indie rock fans will largely move on like every couple of years to a completely new set of favorite bands and only maintain a few true like lifelong obsessions. Um yeah, uh, which is why you'll you'll go to like, you no know, like something like Judas Priest can still fill out like an arena, or Iron Maiden and just keep are probably arguably maybe the biggest band in the entire world when you think of like worldwide audience. And meanwhile, other bands like like even ones that still remain relatively big like the Smashing Pumpkins aren't really a shred of what they used to be. And once they get old or you know they don't look cool anymore, they have a few less lesser outings. People kind of turn on them and they become like a punchline but uh and that's gonna happen though like a lot of other bands like it's gonna happen to arcade fire eventually yeah i know i know it, it, it usually does and yep. so everybody you're listening to the the uh digression cast um <laughs> i just i just imagine like people typing in maybe david wayne in a search engine and they're listening, and, uh, yeah. listening to this, and, and then, then they're like, "Wait a minute, what?" And they they're talking about metal and trails version. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm sure by now they 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 know um, that I love music just as much as movies. Hopefully, at least the regulars are able to understand. Like, if there's a digression into another um, form of creative self-expression, it's not the end of the world. But let's get back to movies, okay? Because <laughs> that is what this show should be. Um, sorry, I'm being goofy. Yeah, so I don't know. I think we should get back to talking about movies, dude. Because sure. I'm, af- I'm afraid pe- we're going to lose people when we- if we just start digressing too much and talking about metal. Um, but we will get you on for a music-centric pop culture club podcast in the future. Sure. I promise. Because you know what you're talking about. Um, yeah. You know what? Before we get into our David Wayne uh, discussion here, I asked a favor of you because I thought it would be interesting and fun to sort of just give our audience here 
a general impression of what our taste in comedies are like. And, you know, initially I was just like, oh, I made it too broad with, let's just list our favorite comedies for everybody. But um, I liked your idea in sort of narrowing it down to a specific type of comedy. But then again, as I was going through a list, I wasn't sure if the ones I chose, if they all apply to the term lowbrow. So (laughs) specifically... um, how would you define lowbrow comedy? Um, like, I think it's almost easier to say what's not lowbrow. I mean, yeah. even if a director makes one that seems lowbrow, like I disqualified the big Lebowski immediately because, sure, it's got, you know, a lot of the hallmarks that you expect from a lowbrow comedy if you look at by pure content, but the actual, like, craft of it and everything like that is there. And uh, someone like Judd Apatow, for me, to me, like, he's reaching too far for me to consider a lowbrow, even if it's full of, you know, how I know your gay jokes. Um, and for the matter, a lot of the Seth Rogen kind of comedies even are, are, I've kind of fallen into that zone. To me, lowbrow comedy, if the DVD has like giant red old font, <laughs> if it's, um, if it's been released like as a combo pack with three other movies that, you know, aren't sequels or prequels, um, if it's been made by the Farrelly brothers or Penelope Spirits, <laughs> you know, um, and mostly if it's a comedy from the 90s, most of the time, uh, it's probably uh, lowbrow. Um, this is the ones we're talking about, like, you know, your SNL movies, your, uh, like, the, the, the kind of piss and fart jokes from before anyone tried to actually... Um, uh, make a statement or the sort of modern comedy style of um, being more kind of observational about like the way people really are like the avatar wave again um, people are just trying to be goofy and make you laugh is that fair? <laughs> yeah no totally um, it, it, it's tough because like yeah um, you know there's 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 a, a lot of sub categories and genres yeah. there like beyond just like your basic comedy yeah, like even Christopher Guest and Rob Reiner were too highbrow for what I was trying to go for with this list here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard because I was like, well, Monty Python, Fish Called Wanda, like, but the, it's it's intellectual humor. It's really smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but I also just didn't want to go to bottom of the barrel potty humor and yeah. dick jokes kind of, either. It, you got to think of like the higher end of. Uh, idiotic stuff for the masses, uh, hmm. I guess. Okay. So, um, uh, should we go? Uh, like for me, like I actually did include Monty Python because it just felt like too good, and it's like the first thing I really connected with when I was a kid. So that makes um, sense. Um, but other sort of examples, like uh, as honorable mentions, I included things like uh, The Jerk, um, Wayne's World, uh, South Park. Yep. Uh, Dumb and Dumber, the Austin Powers movies, which I find have kind of grown on me with age. Really? Uh, the Naked Gun movies, uh, Super Troopers, CB4, uh, the Cheech and Chong movies, uh, Orgasmo, Nacho Libre, Hot Rod, Brother Solomon, and Gentleman Broncos. Gentleman Broncos came, is so weird. Yeah, I love <laughs> Gentleman Broncos. It's like maybe the most 
don't know, of all movies I have that I consider underrated, it's pretty up there. Um, but within my like top ten, I went with um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Wow. I went with uh, Zoolander. Okay. I went with uh, Strange Brew. Uh, UHF, of course. Uh, Billy Madison. Kind of the height of um, Adam Sandler at its kind of most anarchistic uh, spirit. Uh, McGruber. Kids in the Hall Brain Candy, which was almost kind of off my list because Kids in the Hall are kind of intellectual. But there's something about that movie that was just like on the bubble for me. Uh, Anchorman. Uh, Basketball, which I think is the UHF of the 90s and I'll dare say that Ooh. Um, uh, and uh, I talked about this also on Ryan McNeil's podcast recently but I consider myself a, a great admirer of Pretty Got Fingered I don't hate it <laughs> I'm it would be like 3.5 out of 5 for me oh, I, yeah. I find really funny things in that movie um, I don't think it's consistently great or anything but I I, when I tell people, like, one of the reasons why I proposed to the girl I was with at the time was because she laughed at the exact same things that I laughed at in Freddy Got Fingered. Yeah. Like, that was a huge reason why. <laughs> I was just like, if this girl is, can laugh at Freddy Got Fingered with me, then it could work out. Sadly, it didn't, yeah. but that's another, that's another story. Um, um, yeah, I definitely have fond memories of um, watching an episode of Undeclared like half a year after Pretty Got Finger came out and there's like a long dialogue of uh, I think it was Martin Starr's character comes to visit uh, <laughs> uh, in, in college visit uh, Jay Baruchel's character and he's at a party and he's going on long rants about how Pretty Got Fingered is misunderstood and it's like the perfect anti-comedy I'm like and that's like the first uh, first inkling I got from anywhere that somebody else actually liked it <laughs> and Understood what I saw in it, and uh, and uh, yeah, big deal for me. And it was the first DVD I ever bought. I bought that DVD <laughs> before it uh, even uh, before I even had a DVD player. Yeah, mine is the my first DVD is the most cliche thing in the world. It's it's the Matrix. Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. like oh yeah, I have to buy that and experience <laughs> it on DVD. So was that your list? Yeah. All course. right. Um. Mine, I'll, I'll go with I'll go with some runners up too because we do have some matches here. Obviously, South Park, um, Trading Places, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, the Three Pink Dirty Pan- Rotten Scoundrels, Too Highbrow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Except for Ruprecht. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's probably what I'm focused on when putting right. that on the list. Uh, Pink Panther Strikes Again, which I haven't seen since I was a kid, but I just remember laughing my ass off at that movie, particularly the. Um, the big fight scene, um, <laughs> the training sequence, uh, Billy Madison, Kids in the Hall, Brain Candy, The Money Pit, and UHF, all runners up. Number ten, Strange Brew. Number nine, Airplane. Number eight, American Pie. Number seven, easily my favorite Fairly Brothers movie, Kingpin. Oh, I should have included that. I love Kingpin. I remember people walking out of that movie when I watched it with my friend. We were yeah. we were like the biggest Dumb and Dumber fans in the world, and when we saw Kingpin, we loved it almost as much. Which, yeah. by the way, Dumb and Dumber should be in my runners up. <laughs> Dumb and Dumber is the most I think I've ever laughed in the theater at a movie. Given I was like fourteen or fifteen, 
And yeah. within a couple of weeks of that, I, I had the same similar experience at the Nutty Professor. But uh, <laughs> uh, that did not uh, work the second time around. No, but, um, that, that one doesn't age well, unfortunately. No. Um, I put Planes, Trains, and Automobiles on here. I mean, it's half lowbrow and half really saccharine. <laughs> um, once you get that shot of them walking um, down the street with the big uh, chest and uh, then <laughs> John Hughes decides to play every time you go away. Yeah. Um, you take a piece of meat with you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I'm surprised Weird Al didn't do that. Um, but yeah, I just... I don't know. That That's a, that's a special movie for me. Like I mean, I remember uh, begging my dad to rent that movie and we were like trying every night for like a week and it was out every single night and we would go to the video store after work every single night to see if it was in and then finally we got it and it uh, we watched it as a family and laughed hysterically at it um, number five is my favorite Zucker Brothers movie and that's Top Secret um, it is the most absurd, ridiculous, craziest thing that they've done number four is Anchorman Number three is another sort of sentimental, nostalgic favorite, um, Three Amigos. Oh, yeah. Which I, I adore. Uh, number two, Blazing Saddles. Number one, The Jerk. Cool. Yeah. The Jerk, the, to me, is the prototype of everything that Will Ferrell does. Yep. That's, that's very true. That's very true. And it's, it's one of those comedies, much like Wet Hot American Summer, I laugh as hard upon, I don't know how many rewatches at this point, as I did the first time. Um, yeah. And watching it with different people and having different experiences. and I mean, I think for the most part I've had positive experiences with the jerk showing it to people, but with What Hot American Summer, it's interesting. Different friends have different reactions to that. Uh, I feel like, like I neglected to mention uh, Christmas Vacation as well. It's reminding me. Yeah, yeah. I like, obviously, the first Vacation and Christmas Vacation, too. Definitely. Yeah, I'm sure so there's one something. Um, I think the thing with like comedies that are like lowbrow or whatever is, and Wet Hot is obviously an example of this, is and UHF as well is that they're just completely critically reviled from their time, yeah. and you know I don't know if they're classics to us because we grew up with them, or and we were young and the target audience. Like I just wonder the amount of movies that are out today that are going to be considered classic comedies or ones that are almost there like is dude where's my car a classic comedy to people uh, like, I don't think so not that uh, I know of Nikki's around five years younger than me and she has a number of movies that she considers that way for her and I know she loves like Night at the Roxbury and hmm. uh, Superstar like um, which I learned is actually really good um, oh is it yeah, it's um, uh, Bruce McCulloch directed it, and um, yeah, uh, it is kind of way more of a modern uh, sensibility than really was around in 1999. But thing is, that's why whenever there's a comedy in theaters, I can never trust trust it, and I end up seeing bad new comedies because you never know if if the critics are right or if Bad Teacher <laughs> or uh, We're the Millers is some hidden gem because. All the comedies that are that I love were probably most of them were badly reviewed when they came out. So yeah, no, that, that's true. I remember 
Especially Ebert, man, like both with the UHF and Brain Candy. And obviously and, uh, went on American Summer. <laughs> and uh, we were talking about film spotting before we started recording, and they never liked any major comedy, it seemed. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, know, I, I just, I don't know, like, I know what I like. Isn't, you know, it's it's easy to just say, well, that's that's what I find funny. And you're, I do think that maybe seeing something like Brain Candy with a, with a, with a best friend and just seeing like an audience not getting it, but we were laughing hysterically. That's got to add yeah. something to the experience. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, well, this is our thing. We love it. This is, you know, um, and then we sort of, you know, uh, coddle it or something. We just like take it home with us. And, you know, once it comes out on video, we rewatch it together and, yeah. you know, quote it together. And these are um, always like your comfort movies when you're sick and everything. Too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah the last um, time so I was eventually, sick. eventually like, all the weaknesses kind of disappear because well comedy is more than any other film like just benefit from rewatch not because the jokes become necessarily fresher or that every comedy has like those little details that you miss it's just that uh, I think a lot of those the weaker things just kind of disappear like you, the stretches in between jokes you know where they are so you're not just constantly waiting to be fed the next uh, moment you know yeah, today, um, while I was cleaning my room, I put on a, um, Observe and Report, which I hadn't watched in a while, and I was laughing pretty consistently throughout that and just realizing how Michael Pena is kind yeah. of a hidden treasure in, in movies um, as a comic presence, both in that one and Ant-Man. He kind of he steals it, in a way. Yeah. Uh, so, what were your thoughts on Observe and Report? I, I don't know if I ever... Um, I haven't take. seen it in a while, but I I really liked it at the time. And um, that's a uh, is that Jody Hill? Yeah, yeah. Because right? um, man, his humor is fucking dark. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, it just, it just worked. And I really liked. I'm one of the people that really enjoyed the Foot Fist way, and uh, sure, really liked uh, Eastbound and Down. Um, and. I think he maybe pulled David Gordon Green a little too far away from his comfort zone, but uh, I like what Jody Hill was doing with everything. So. Yeah, yeah, I, I I would agree with that completely. It's it's just a it's just a weird experience watching it because there's like moments between him and his mom where I'm like getting really sort of caught up emotionally, and then it'll it'll undercut it or with a, with a crazy line or something, yeah. and it's it's just a weird balance that guys like him and to some extent David Gordon Green especially in something like Pineapple Express they they hit at some pathos here and there throughout yeah and that's something that like yeah I don't I, I don't know if I consider observing report lowbrow but god there's that montage with him and Michael Pena like beating the shit out of people and it, it wouldn't be out of place in an absurdist comedy and there are moments in that movie that's like yeah this yeah. this this is Wayne-esque at times yeah, yeah. Like, um, I guess we could segue into Wayne here, being that Wayne definitely likes to um, undercut the likability of his own lead yeah. characters, uh, and randomly, like you never see it coming. It's not really like, like, oh, we did a, made a storyline decision that will make you question whether or not this character is a good person. Like, for example, like five year engagement, where like a character is beating up too much on another character or something like that, but more. 
it's just in like a random aside where all of a sudden the character is telling someone to shut up or they're throwing someone on the ground <laughs> just that for no reason whatsoever and it just lets you know that like you know what we're just these are you know actors and and we're not really making telling a real story here <laughs> where we're like it's basically saying we're, we're, we're a joke delivery device and here are your jokes and we're going to slap you in the face with the fact that you're not really watching a story I just it's it's hard to know like where to begin because my first experience wasn't with the state and I, I, I retroactively obviously after I saw what Hot American Summer went back and watched the state and went god again this is my sensibility my sense of humor and why wasn't I watching this when MTV was on were you watching the state when it was on MTV no um we didn't have it up here um mm. I don't think it was up here and besides up in Canada we're all kids in the hall people right so that's true <laughs> um to me like it was so weird seeing a sketch show that to me is honestly so inferior to kids in the hall in every way but and yet it's cast have yeah. kind of taken over and fertilized into pretty much everything in I modern know, comedy right? um whether that's uh you know wayne whether it's uh tom lennon uh, Joe Latrulio uh, is like in with the Apatow people a whole lot. Ken Marino is like all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, Showalter and Wayne are both kind of doing their own thing, but they overlap with each other quite a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the state, I mean, it has like, like it did a lot of recurring sketches, and I think it fell back on that even worse than maybe even uh, SNL did. For various periods but to me the state is kind of along the lines of like Ben Stiller's show of like sketch shows that were like really high on talent but not, weren't necessarily wasn't really a legendary show in its own right um, it yeah was not consistent kind of, yeah yeah and it might have been the their age or like being thrown together or, or, or just something with the MTV environment in particular but it just wasn't really, uh, and I'd even throw Human Giant in there as well. Um, we're like these people have become kind of heavyweights within their own industry, but um, it's more interesting to kind of go back now to see is almost like a, a seed rather than uh, you know like oh the best stuff was when they were kids kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And then jumping forward, I think what made me fall in love with them all over again after kind of a lull was their sort of um, sketch-based group, Stella. Yeah. And unfortunately, one season, you know, I mean... Yeah, yeah. I'm sure Comedy Central didn't know what to do with that that show, but... Um, uh, I actually... Stella was my jumping-off point. I I saw Stella before I even saw What I Had American Summer. Oh, yeah? Um, I didn't... uh, I I was, like, kind of going through phases where I had too much money and I was just kind of buying shows that had, like... That seemed good. You know, like they had a Comedy Central logo on the back. I'm like, okay, I'll give this a shot. 
so I found it for 15 bucks and I was like immediately kind of in love with it in the first episode where they're wearing you know raccoon tails and like all oh, these guys are all wearing suits and uh, there's a bonus feature that to me is like still the best thing that they've ever done is the uh, it's, it's Friday night promo uh, <laughs> go on YouTube and just look up Stella it's Friday night and it's just like 30 to, sec- to one seconds to one minute of just pure absolute joy and um Show Walter in particular was my immediate favorite um, among them because uh, his facial expressions and just the uh-huh. way he did his lip. And he bore a resemblance to my roommate. And and I got him hooked immediately because he, he kind of saw Show Walter as his own avatar. Um, <laughs> and then you got Michael Ian Black, who's like, to this day, I think he jokes around that he reads gay to everybody. Uh, and then you got David Wayne just kind of awkwardly you know not really fitting in with the group and being kind of like a weird outlier but um yeah and, and, and they play, that, they play uh, up to that too in the live show which is kind yeah, of yeah yeah and uh, the live dvd you can get for like cents but the live show uh, the live in boston dvd is great as well yeah um so from stella jumping into wet hot american summer the person who watched wet hot american summer i knew like i went in knowing that the reviews for it were pretty bad so it's kind of almost watching kind of like with like kind of arms folded like make me laugh but still also being aware that Stella wasn't everyone's cup of tea either. And uh, I remember, like, the first watch, not really, like, kind of laughing, just kind of just having, like, respect for how, um, uh, I wouldn't say full-on anti-comedy, but it kind of had a lot of things that are just aggressively unfunny. You know what I mean? And sometimes those things, you, you like kind of Freddy Got Fingered or, or, or um, other sort of, like, Tim and Eric, I guess, you kind of have to get used to it or, or understand what they're doing like because it's technically it's a parody of like meatballs and like camp comedies but it's just kind of a, a springboard for for jokes you know it's not really deep like and same with they came together I mean they're not thoroughly truly deconstructing the genre I mean it's part of it but it's kind of uh, you know uh, a playground you know like they're there they have so many different types of comedy just working in I had obviously seen the Comedy Central show and was reminded, like, oh, yeah, well, these are the guys who did Wet Hot American Summer, and I love Wet Hot American Summer. But this this sense of humor was just so out there and kind of, like, Dadaist or something. And just, like you mentioned, deconstructing comedy or anti-comedy, it was, it was bizarre but, like, endearing at the same time. And, like, they're kind of jerks but then you grow to love them <laughs> like and they're really good friends so it's just like all these things colliding together in a way that just works for me and like when friends would watch anything David Wayne related with me there are moments where I'm laughing hysterically and they're they're quiet they, they're just like really you find that in particular funny like them breaking at like at one point in the first episode of Stella, they just start meowing like cats for no reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, for no reason. Like there's there, there's no reason why they're doing that, and it's just great. And I don't know why it's so great. It just is. Um, and then I forget which episode it is. It might be the the coffee shop episode where it it sort of um, it planted the seed for their topics show like this particular type of dry humor where they're kind of making fun of um, intellectual pretentiousness in a way with 
them talking about like I see God as this table and I don't see God as this guy in the clouds with a big white beard um and so like when I first started listening to Topics podcasts I was just like scratching my head at first because I'm like what are they doing it was like the anti-podcast in a way it was just like they're sort of making fun of you know people who wax philosophical for hours on end but I I find it so sincere at the same time and genuine and Tim Heidecker's uh, movie podcast is kind of like that too oh yeah yeah. See, that's the thing, too. Um, you know, as much as I, like, love most absurdist comedy, um, obviously, you know, the guys from the state and Kids in the Hall, Monty Python, all these crack me up. What the hell? I I don't like Tim and Eric, and I can't figure that out. Like, I try and I try and I try. There's a complete disconnect with me and Tim and Eric, and it seems like something I should love. Um, what what is it about are, Tim and Eric that you appreciate? I'm curious. Just go um, off on a tangent. Tim and Eric is a little bit of everything. I mean, Tim and Eric have kind of the kind of gross out, kind of um, intentionally push you awayness that Tom Green has. Sure. Um, but I'd say more than anything, uh, well, well, one thing that Tim and Eric does have uh, in common with David Wayne, the small thing, is kind of uh, intentionally screwing up words. Uh, like you know how like David Wayne, whenever there's like a like an actual corporation or like a product, they'll like say like, for example, if it was Head and Shoulders, it would be Food and Shooters, you know, like for no reason whatsoever, just and to call attention to the fact that it's obviously Head and Shoulders but not. And like that, Tim and Eric are constantly like inventing kind of own their own words, like whether it's you know shrimp or 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 whatever it is, you know. Um, and uh, there's a little bit of the kind of the Neil Hamburger kind of sense of antique comedy too. Who also Neil Hamburger is also kind of involved with Tom Green and uh, projects in the past. Hmm. Um, yeah, like when Tom Green had his uh, show running out of his house, Neil Hamburger would host a host a show immediately afterwards in his backyard by the pool called Poolside Chats. That's right. And, yeah, forgot about that. Um, and uh, also, I'd say more than anything, what what really kind of uh, got me on board with Tim and Eric is knowing the thing that's driving Tim and Eric is every, what they're doing is they're kind of a commentary on uh, the media itself and I don't mean like the media as like a brainwashing sort of thing but just the actual like uh, way that uh, things are presented uh, so like I remember like obviously like they, they do a lot of stuff with uh, that kind of mocks local television yeah. uh, you know um, you know, uh, and stuff like that but one of my favorite examples yeah yeah uh, one of my favorite things that Tim and Eric have done, though, was they did one episode where they kind of got taken over and they became kind of um, like your like kind of extreme like like X Games kind of presentation, where like everything was like uh, uh, like uh, energy drink kind of energy, you know. <laughs> so it was like way more slickly produced with like unnecessary graphics and the way that kind of people talk to the camera and, and are kind of like. They're do they're douchey presenters, but they're also trying to look like they're like skateboarders, you know that. And um, the only other person I know that's like doing that, like there's like uh, Kyle Mooney on SNL has been doing a little bit of that uh, himself uh, in some of his shorts on that show. And uh, Lonely Island have kind of tapped a little bit into that here and there. Um, but uh, and Tim and Eric are even kind of bringing that now into like self help kind of things and right. Um, 
so I'd say more than anything, they're they're just showing how the actual presentation of uh, of various things, whether it's like really slick production or cheap production, um, and that, and how much that's tied into like and what it says about the people making it. So okay. and that people the people making it must be like it enhances their weirdness or you know like it amplifies it or you know decreases it or, or or whatever and that's why i think it's so uh a big deal that the way that they bring in um you know john c Riley and the way they've brought in uh jeff goldblum a number of times mm-hmm. like they don't just bring in the usual la comedy people sure you'll see david cross in there or something but uh the way that you know like when i think of john c Riley now like even from his days at uh working like talladega nights the difference between his character in Talladega Nights and him playing uh, Steve Brule and what he's done with that character. I mean, they talk about like like a like a weird comedic range. I mean, um, uh, and the kind of things that people are willing to do to really kind of humiliate and debase themselves, and uh, and that's a big part of it too. Is just kind of the comedy, like the kind of really cringe-inducing comedy. And I don't mean like David Brent or like uh, The Office. Uh, I'm talking about like presenting yourself in the worst possible light, you know. Like, have you, have you ever like to like gross out a girlfriend, but also make her laugh? Like, you're oh, in your sure. you hike your underwear way up, like like an old man up to like <laughs> half, up your up to your boobs, yeah. And, uh, or you know, or or tuck your tuck your your dick in between your legs and do like the you know sounds of the lamb dance or something, you know. Oh, like, of course, that's that's what that's what Tim and Eric are also kind of doing, you know. Yeah. Uh, I could see that. I, so, I wish I found like, it funnier than most. They're, they're, they're kind of out there. They're a little bit. Um, I think Mark Marin compared them to being like if they were a, a band, they would be Ween. And yeah, they I love Ween. And 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 I think that's exactly what they're doing. They're they're Ween. That's <laughs> interesting. That's that's a Ween really kind of cool comparison. Yeah. Like Ween are genre hopping, and they're something. Sometimes it seems like they're making a mockery of it. Sometimes it's completely thorough um, uh, love best for it, but there's also some sort of weird kind of meta commentary going on about uh, about the style and and what you take from from it just by presentation. Yeah, and I I think what I really like about Wayne, in you know, as much as I obviously appreciate the whole um, resurgence of the. Uh, observational and introspective humor of, you know, Louis C.K. and uh, Patton Oswalt and, you know, the the kind of directness of someone like Maria Bamford towards addressing her own issues and, you know, tackling it in a very funny manner. There's something about David Wayne sort of divesting all of that and creating an entire um, comedic landscape that's not necessarily built on uh, I'm going to reflect on what's really going on in the world or what's what I'm really feeling. I want to just simply laugh. Yeah. And Showalter too is has this really I mean obviously I think he is the one um responsible for that uh the bartender scene and they came together because he yeah. loves repetition. And the idea that's the thing too is like they they have this like denial of narrative beats and 
they don't believe in the usual setup, build-up, punchline approach to a joke. Yeah. Which I think puts people off. I think there are reasons why people have adapted to certain comedy conventions and respond to certain things, not necessarily because they're brainwashed, but they're, we're conditioned to approach comedy in a certain fashion. And maybe it's because my dad exposed me at a younger age. That sounded weird and wrong. Um, but he um, he he uh, enlightened me to things like Steve Martin. Um, yeah. And so maybe that prepares me a little bit more for the absurdist, Dadaist approach to comedy that I think Wayne and Showalter do so well. Yeah, um, I'd say like... Wayne just reminds me of like he's like if he's not reminding me of like my actual friends, then it's reminding me of like the friends who at least wanted to have. And I mean, they're not they're not at all trying to really be cool or the smartest guys in the room or yeah. really overall try to impress you. And they're not in the full on sort of awkward geeky forced side of things like Chris Hardwick is. You know what I mean? Where he's trying to like prove their geek credentials either. They're. Um, and, and yet, at the same time, they're not just regular old mainstream comedy either. They're they're technically like alternative comedy, but they're not like hipsters like either. You know, they're just a bunch of strange people who all found each other. And within that group, you can find someone like Ken Marino, who's like <laughs> the only other comedian that I can think of that's like as buff as him is like Ben Stiller. <laughs> you know. And meanwhile, on the other, and then you've got like. Uh, like Showalter who's just completely well he's letting himself go but I mean he's just entirely just like a completely tender odd little teddy bear of a human being you know um, they've got yeah the name of Paul. his the name of his comedy album is Sandwiches and Cats yeah <laughs> like he's a very kind of like uh, Showalter's like a, a son of like his parents are like professor yeah know, like and they're, it's not like a really heady this is not like this, listening to the Decemberists you know they're not like making necessarily intellectual comedy they're just clearly people who've had uh, kind of bizarre um, people in their lives the kind of uh, I don't know not necessarily bohemian but I mean there's like a type that's just you expect that they didn't have a TV growing up, or you expect that their parents like only listened to jazz, or <laughs> um, or that you know uh, their only friend was like a rock, <laughs> you know, like just just these just these strange people, um, and uh, the only people in the, that entire like state group. I mean, there are a few of them that are a bit more straight laced. Like I'd say Tom Lennon there's a reason why he was working with like the Reno 911 people and uh, he made a lot of pretty terrible scripts uh, and he wrote that book about um, how to make it in Hollywood writing scripts um, he's kind of the more mainstream side of what the state was all about yeah. but um, the people that like Wayne has really kept attaching himself to it's just kind of weird that of all people like the consistent person is Paul Rudd and the kind of range that Paul Rudd actually has and Paul Rudd I think is like Wayne's avatar of what Wayne wishes he could be you know like Paul Rudd is as, <laughs> as, as cool as Wayne would like to be and Paul Rudd is not necessarily that cool <laughs> you know yeah. he's just like uh, a handsomer more all-american uh, 
less Jewish version of himself. Um, and uh, yeah, he's like that. He he can be like a sassy superhero, and he can be a leading romantic man, like genuinely in other films. But he's also still the guy who's, in my opinion, made the funniest lines in pretty much all of his his movies. Yeah, Paul Rudd is. He consistently impresses me in every comedy that he's in, and I, uh, you know, going back to when I even first saw Clueless, I was like, oh, that's a charming guy. I wonder what wonder what will become of him. Um, but I wasn't necessarily thinking he was going to be, you know, the go-to for, you know, the comedies that he's been in, including Anchorman. Um, yeah. And so the fact that he's become Wayne's, you know, De Niro of sorts, like, you know. Yeah, he's used. Yeah, it, it's 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 really it's kind of charming in a way, and I um, I thought he was the best part of uh, Wet Hot American Summer when I first saw it, and you know just he has some of the best lines, and like you know um, I don't you taste like a burger I don't like you anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's just there's so many moments throughout Wet Hot American Summer that of, he steals. Uh, the physical comedy of cleaning up the yeah the cafeteria genius. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it's weird because it seemed like there was a period where it seemed like Paul Rudd was being kind of one trick. I mean, and yeah. it shows off most in uh, role models, um, where uh, Paul Rudd will go back to being that thing where someone says something odd or off-putting, and he kind of like looks around, like, like what? Did I, am I the only person that noticed how weird that was? <laughs> like, it's very Jim from the Office, at, uh, and at that point, that kind of trick had kind of gotten old and then yeah. Paul Rudd was doing that for a few years um, and he had to kind of come back around uh, and I think it was more around 2009 or 10 that kind of got there um, but well, uh, yeah, I don't know we they, should probably focus zero in a few, on a few of these project projects in particular rather than going all over the map um, oh sure yeah I, I agree I, you know, I was going to sort of cite too like he could have you know, kind of been that charming, romantic leading man in something like the object of my affection. And then, yeah. oddly enough, they were cast together again in Wanderlust, which I think is kind of funny and, and, and <laughs> apropos. Yeah. And in a way, like, that mirror scene is him, like, embracing the, you know, the Anchorman Paul Rudd or the Wet Hot American Summer Paul Rudd and sort of saying fare thee well to the role models Paul Rudd, which... I think is uh, something special, but you know, we can definitely start from the beginning too, and you know, talk about in terms of the films, you know, what yeah. we love the most about each of them. Um, you know, obviously, Wet Hot American Summer is always going to be my favorite. I don't know. If, I'm I'm assuming that uh, you know, even just looking at your letterbox, you you pretty much give David Wayne five stars through and through, and. Yeah, but Wet Hot is the only one I can declare a classic masterpiece in my mind, and it's just funny to see, especially on Letterboxd, how many of my closest movie buddies disagree. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Uh, I think the big, the big, big joke in Wet Hot American Summer, as well as the new one, is just seeing just how much they pack within one day. Yeah. Um, and so they're trying they're doing everything they can to basically slap them in the face of like Sam this is an impossible day with too many storylines and yet most of them kind of have an over have an arc 
throughout the day. <laughs> um, and uh, as for as many different weird kind of uh, asides, like I think the biggest one being the trip into town where they all end up like on drugs, oh, uh, which is so the first, the, the truest full on like diversion into like, hey, we're not the movie you thought we were here. Um, it's all like those little things that also contribute to that. I mean, whether it's the sound of something, a plate breaking every time someone throws anything whatsoever, um, the way that they're undercutting like everything where like, you know, you think that Beth is one place or another and then all of a sudden because they have to, now she's in the water performing a, a marriage ceremony and then she's back at a library somewhere learning about uh, astrophysics, <laughs> you know, like um, and it takes a while sometimes I think that's one thing that really does pay on rewatch it's just there are a lot of new things that you just sort of realize oh how did they find time to do that you know um, uh, the training montages and, and everything like that and, um, noticing that uh, now uh, that he's done multiple movies where there's a character named Beth where they work in uh, Kiss and actually working the actual song path into it. That's more than that's happened more than once. Um, <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Uh, there's the jokes like about with uh, Debbie, uh, the Debbie Debbie, tall Debbie, <laughs> Debbie Freeman <laughs> who wants to get food, and uh, and uh, and how C Lab 2021 ripped off the exact same joke a few years later. Oh really? Um, yeah, yeah. With multiple characters named Debbie and um, yeah. But um, is there anything that's kind of unique, other than a bunch of good references that make you make that hot American summer unique to you? Or it's crazy to think about, you know, like even just rewatching it now. There's things in there I don't get that I just find really either charming or funny or both. And even after they get back from, you know. Uh, visiting the town and, and shooting up heroin and doing all the crazy things they do for no reason at all. They just run into the, like the side of a cabin. Like, they all line up. It's just a weird throwaway moment that's like barely a second, but yeah, I just kind of like, what is that? <laughs> and there's a point where like Zach Ort uh, gets yeah. up and just like walks off the pier and does like a face plant into the water. Right. <laughs> just uh, yeah, lots of little things like that. Um, and yeah, it's those like, moments that like, make me appreciate like just kind of Wayne's tendency to go for broke and be audacious and just do things that don't make sense in the moment. Yeah, but they can um, be found funny to the right person. And just sort of all these years, still not wondering and not knowing, even after the new series that hasn't really completely settled for me is like, the beekeeper is he aware that he's not plugged in? Is Or is he Oh, that's right, yeah. Like, is, is he insane? Or has he just been kind of doing this all summer thinking that he's been communicating and not? You know, like, no idea. No idea. Um, yeah. And little subtle things like the guitar guy um, and that he's teaching all the other kids to play guitar and they all have electric guitars. Um, <laughs> uh, I believe the guitar guy is the actual composer. Oh yeah, um, that's uh, Craig Wedren, I guess? Yeah, that's a, that's another thing. Uh, 
he's been with Wayne and Showalter since the very beginning, since the state. And he's um, he's the lead singer of a band called Shudder to Think that I really thought was uh, underappreciated at the time. And when I saw him open up for, I believe it was the Twilight Singers or the Afghan Wigs reunion, I can't quite recall. I think it was the Twilight Singers, and everybody was talking during his set. Like, they didn't know who he was. Uh, they didn't care. Like, I don't know if the, if the advertisers of the show didn't put, you know, Craig of Shudder to Think. They just put his name and that was it. And nobody knew him by his name. Um, but nobody knew who he was or what songs he was singing or everything. And I'm just like, people! This guy is a legend! And he's done amazing work. He's responsible for the crazy state theme song. Um, and so much that it's, you know, after he got off stage, I had to go up to him and talk to him and be like, dude, you've worked with, you know, David Wayne and done all this amazing work. And, you know, I had to thank him for it all. <laughs> just like, you really contributed a lot of cool stuff, including that incredible song um, that's used in the uh, training montage. So and, uh, I gotta give him props, and uh, I even like give credit that um, throughout all his movies, he uses a lot of classic rock. There's only been a few cases where he used um, modern music like whatsoever. Um, I guess it's just like a love of Wayne's somewhere. Um and the overall kind of there's an authenticity to Wet Hot and and how they presented the '80s, and I mean it's been mm-hmm. replicated a number of times in a lot of movies trying to get that 80s feel to it, but it feels more right in Wet Hot American Summer. Yeah, and I don't, and I don't want to give off the impression that, like, oh, just because I said Wayne's not necessarily interested in being observational or introspective, I don't mean to, you know, kind of say that he that his films are impersonal, because clearly both Showalter and Wayne went to summer camp, yeah. and they've uh, mentioned on commentaries too that they've had actual experiences that are reflected in um, in the movies including you know awkward you know encounters with members of the opposite sex or in the uh, recent Netflix series um, crapping in the pants that actual Walter actually did that <laughs> and of course um, I think I even messaged you like did you see the callback uh, when um, Christopher Maloney, uh, right, right, right. Yeah, you, uh, yeah. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. Just wanted to confirm. I figured you would, because you're smart. Um, but yeah, what hot American summer? Um, I can't say enough good things about the handheld camera moment where Janine Garofalo and Joe Latrulio are busting up shit. Um, yeah, that is still one of the hardest things I've ever laughed at in my life. The last the last moment of that where Joe just like elbows the lamp and it just cuts like kind of on an awkward cut is just I don't know, there's something about that moment that kills me. And then the whole thing with the um, the chase scene with him and Camerino. Um, I'm so glad that they <laughs> referenced that and redid that for the TV show too. Yeah, that was yeah. great. That is a very much uh, one of those scenes that very much like a Lonely Island kind of thing. Now. Yeah, yeah, totally. 
which I wholeheartedly approve of. But, um, yeah, I mean, I understand if people don't connect with it. I personally, I mean, I went to summer camp. I had a really horrible experience there. Um, I, I'm very familiar with this ridiculously cheesy movie from 1985 called Poison Ivy, which might have just aired on TV, but it starred Michael J. Fox, um, and it was just basically a summer camp movie in the vein of Meatballs, only um, less racy and stuff, but (laughs) it was just, uh, you know, it just reflected, like, exactly what it's like to be at summer camp and not fit in, and I, for some reason, like... I really <laughs> do find Wet Hot American Summer to be kind of a sweet movie at the same time being, you know, an absurdist comedy. And mm-hmm. I'll stand by that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I want to move on too because my least favorite of Wayne's films is something that I actually wrote to him about. Well, in this film spotting clip that I'm going to play right here, um, I asked David Wayne what were the odds of maybe doing a Kentucky Fried movie with the members of the state and sort of just like doing individual sketches and stuff. And um, it turns out it happened. <laughs> this is from a devoted fan of yours who listens to our show, James Eric in Chicago. He calls himself an insane devotee to all things Wayne. And he had f- the top five questions he wanted to pose to you. One of them was about Paul Rudd and his comedic genius. So we got that out of the way. So here are the other four. How did it feel to receive a one-star review from Ebert and yet also make Entertainment Weekly's top ten best of the year list for Wet Hot American Summer? I was happy that Ebert took the time in his one-star review to compose a verse to the tune of Hello Mother, Hello Father. <laughs> uh, obviously, it had enough of an effect on him that he he could have just written a, re- a random review, but he really took the time, so mm-hmm. I was pleased. Is there a possibility of a movie featuring the entire cast of the state doing a Kentucky Fried Movie series of sketches? Well, he should go rent the movie The Ten. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Every member of the state is in The Ten. And number three, is either Wainy Days or The Lost Stella Shorts ever coming to DVD? Wainy Days, most probably, yes. Stella Shorts, no. No? And the last question, will Stella ever tour the country again together? Starting November 30th. Wow, there you go. StellaComedy.com. Well, he's going to be very excited to check (laughs) that out. The 10 is hit and miss for me in terms of the sketches, but I have to say, again... One of the hardest things I've ever laughed at is the CAT scan sketch. Um, <laughs> Liev Schreiber, I, I again, I never thought in a million years this guy is hilarious, but once again, <laughs> he's he's fucking amazing in that sketch. And you know, you were mentioned too the Tim and Eric thing with uh, changing corporate names with the Booger King. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That whole thing is hilarious. Yeah. I mean, I. Just the, just the <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just the idea of it being cat scans that these two neighbors are competing over is just yeah. a touch of genius. Um, the thing with the ten overall is that uh, is that it ignores that it's own, its own concept almost entirely. Yeah, and there's a few, and there are kinds where, like where like uh, 
because when it zooms into the sketch, it shows like a word, so you can understand like, oh, it's going to be about lust, and then they show it into something like lustful. But then in the different one, they just focus on the letter A, and they have like a character. It's like Rashida Jones comes in, she's going like, hey, and it's like, <laughs> wow. And there's like one where it's like, duh. And like a character, 80 Miles' character is reading a book called like, duh. And other, his other stack of books by his desk are like, and, and if. <laughs> and um, so I find like the 10 is growing on me each time I see it. I mean, I thought it was kind of mediocre the first time. And there's a couple of the sketches yeah. that are really kind of, I say the, the weakest one of all of them is the one where just like I did it as a goof. Um, mm-hmm. You know that was should be like a like a minute and a half state sketch like at best, but it's they've got a it's like I don't know I, I wish that a few of them were kind of cut down just for even for the sake of variety. Sure. But there's so many other like little things that have that have um, really kind of grown on me over the years. Um, like for example, the uh, the fact that the, uh, the name of the city is Homesdale and. <laughs> Um, my favorite line, I think, in this one, and maybe on a ball of stuff, is just like, it's like, it's just like that line from Titanic. I want you to draw me. Like one of your friends. Um, there's a uh, Vahina. There's a uh, yep. Gretchen Mall. Like, um, there's even the the weird thing tied all together with Paul Rudd is growing on me now. It's kind of really awkward, like. And but it's awkward and and on purpose, <laughs> and it's just it's just strange. But you know, I can't say that overall, it's nearly the strongest of it. And on the first watch, I find it's always kind of like you're like, all right, that's enough of this one. What's next? Um, right. Which is a, a lot of sketch comedy is kind of like that in general. Um, well, it's certainly and, better than movie forty three. That's for sure. Yeah, movie forty three is a disaster. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, uh, it maybe gave him a sense of uh, a playfulness that maybe paid off later when he started working on Children's Hospital. And uh, but uh, and uh, I think the lying rhino art is the same people who do Super Jail, which David Wayne is oh, the main yeah. character. Well, that makes uh, sense. So, yeah. So there's so there's connections there that are, were worthwhile, but. Um, if, you, if you're only watching a few days away, maybe you can skip the ten. I agree. Um, I think there's definitely sketches you can watch on their own. On YouTube. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, it was also the first I, inkling of, like, whoa, Justin Thoreau. Hello. He's hilarious, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I think one of my favorite ones is just the uh, Winona Ryder and, and the puppet. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's yeah. okay. Yeah, and uh, one thing I only noticed now, and, and it's worth kind of going back to find, is the music that's playing in that scene that Craig, Craig, Craig uh, Wedren wrote called a song called "Dummy." It's a nice piece of music. I had to go and download <laughs> it separately this time after listening to it. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think I think the uh, the idea was there, and I like the fact that that you know this was kind of an attempt to do. You know the, the the state in a movie form, and uh, I just you know I, I think that they're just like you said, especially with the goof sketch, it could have been trimmed yeah. down, and um, I don't know. I well, but it has highlights. Yeah, for all those flaws, it's still better than the Mister Show movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is really sad, but uh, it's sad but true. 
Um, yeah, so was Role Models next? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, why don't you, you lead the conversation with that? Role Models at the time when it came out was, uh, it seemed like it was a David Wayne for Hire movie. Yeah, um, I thought so like, too. Like the 10 had kind of devalued his stock a bit and and and, um, and it is kind of one of those movies you you see like an unrated uh, sticker on it on the DVD and you're like, oh, this is just going to be another kind of, uh, you know, like going to see like an American Pie sequel or uh, mm-hmm. Tob and Cats or something like that. Especially when you got uh, Sean, Sean William Scott, Scott. Yeah. Um, who actually, despite the fact that he hasn't gone back to work with Wayne, uh, did a great job. And yeah, I thought so. He's fantastic in uh, the movie Goon. Um, right. So, and the sort of uh, real, the chemistry between him and Paul Rudd is pretty strong, and um, he certainly has some of my uh, favorite lines in the whole movie, like the way he just calling into uh, like, uh, well, obviously we're not going to butt fuck these kids. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Jane Lynch <laughs> is great. Yeah, uh, that was right. Jane Lynch right before she got a little bit oversaturated. Like, right. uh, with uh, it was like before Party Down, um, where she was still fresh. But and but I think like Glee kind of uh, it was just too much, too much of uh, of her shtick. Um, it was like, I wouldn't say it got old. It was just too much of a good thing. But. Um, yeah, uh, David Wayne takes what actually feels like a for hire script, and it seems like what he did is he doesn't undermine the actual over the story, um, but he found a way to scribble in the margins, uh, not just from like uh, the casting, whether that's like Joe Latrulio being the um, um, the larber and really kind of playing things up, um, but. Uh, just sort of little things like the way that that kiss is worked in there and the uh, stuff going on with the Minotaur and some of the various one-liners of that um, uh, Jane Lynch has about talking about her sick thoughts um, <laughs> and uh, but it still does have some of those usual kind of typical things that you were expecting out of a movie like this I mean it has you know characters topless for no reason other than to make sure that the movie gets its rating but um, overall, it's like, as far as comedies like this, it's one of the stronger ones out there. Um, one weird little thing to kind of look out for if you watch this again, though, is the 10-second Louis C.K. cameo. Whoa! How did yeah. I miss that? What, where is that? Um, he's a cop, and uh, <laughs> when the uh, car goes like crazy and crashes into the statue... He's the cop that's diving out of the way, oh. and he doesn't really get to do anything. But it's like, wow, the biggest star in this movie, other than uh, Paul Rudd, is like <laughs> just nothing. And it's just so weird when something like that happens. But, uh, yeah, um, I remember going into this too. I think it was uh, something that David Wayne took over, as opposed to it, you know, him coming up with this concept on his own and I was worried like I was thinking oh no is this David Wayne going mainstream but then again I was also walking in there going you know what 
uh, Linkletter really elevated School of Rock, and when I saw when I when I, init- I initially walked into School of Rock, going, "Oh boy, inspirational teacher story, Jack Black doing his shtick. This is not going to work." And I walked out loving that, um, and I walked out loving role models. Um, and it's one that whenever I go back and rewatch it, I I enjoy it more and more. Uh, and it's again like you mentioned, Sean William Scott is actually really good. Um, <laughs> anytime he the one kid is fantastic. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, uh, "See, Ronnie, his dick is the gun." Um, there, <laughs> there's so many things in here that are great. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned are the butts of, of the chipmunk ass butt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like it, your huh and I like your booby theory <laughs> <laughs> right um yeah and there's even a a montage set to one of my favorite songs uh, Mr. Blue Sky in here that's really uh joyful and uh you know it's it says something too about uh you know fitting in to certain groups even if like you want to dismiss them as nerdy they still create a sense of community and yeah. You know, I really like the message of that. I really like that, like, oh, yeah, these, you know, it's almost like uh, the story of the state in a way. Maybe, you know, instead of uh, live-action medieval role-playing, it's, you know, a bunch of comedy nerds. They all came together and formed their own community of sorts. And I don't know. I think there's some real genuine sincerity into this movie overall, and yet it still has its... Um, yeah. vulgarity and Wayne-like absurdity, so I I really think this is one of the more accessible Wayne movies if you just, you know, want oh, to... It's the most accessible, easily. But, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's the only one that has, like, a, you know, a traditional sense of art. I mean, there's, like, right. sincere and sweet characters in a number of his movies, but this is, like, the only one that's, like, they're, like, truly there in the story, like, ingrained. Um, there is one... Uh, Wet Hot American Summer callback. I don't know if you noticed it. Hmm. Hmm. Three words. <laughs> oh, fuck my cock. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you, thank you. I should have picked that up right away. Um, so yeah, the the next one is uh, Wonderlust. Wonderlust. Yes. Wonderlust. I want. Yeah, I always want to say wanderlust for some reason. It's wanderlust, and um, yeah, I again another one that I re- I really enjoy rewatching. Um, hey, did you ever watch the the alternate cut? The Bizarro cut. Yeah, the Bizarro. Um, cut. I think I have, but I can't tell you immediately what the differences are. Yeah, um, same here. <laughs> all I know is just that. Um, Wanderlust was to me was like was Wayne getting back to being Wayne, right? And nothing says that more than when you get to see the three Stella guys um, working together as the news anchors uh-huh. uh, late in the film, and their two uh, brief scenes <laughs> where they're doing very typical Stella kind of repetitive kind of you know smiling but saying inappropriate things. Um, and Justin and, throws uh, oh, yeah. to uh, yeah. um, list off dated technology. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, this was also uh, David Wayne had kind of uh, gone back to TV and had uh, been working on Children's Hospital for a while, right? And that was really working first as kind of a web series, and then uh, onto uh, Adult Swim. 
And uh, the first couple seasons of um, Children's Hospital in particular um, are pretty much amazing. And uh, like um, Wet Hot and um, eventually uh, they came together, it's doing the thing where, you know, it starts off as like, a, you know, that we're going to hit all the conventions of this kind of kind of thing and really amplify it and, and blow it out. Um, but it also just became a launching pad for, for jokes where it was able to do anything and eventually... Uh, led to spinoffs like NTSF SD SUV doing the CSI parodies and newsreaders doing kind of the Onion video better than the Onion does it. Um, and yeah, so with all that kind of experience, um, he was ready and having success doing like a full on regular narrative, I think he was able to sort of find a middle ground in between the two. Uh, and so it's got a full narrative, but uh, within that hippie community, um, with the general kind of anything goes kind of nature of it, um, he was able to have his a bit of his sandbox again. Um, and when you contrast that with uh, Ken Marino's character in Atlanta being kind of the straight-laced, uh, like, douchey guy, he was able to find these two very different things to really um, make a lot with. And uh, Paul Rudd was able to sort of fit into both communities, and and uh, especially, uh, I'd say Jennifer Aniston was great casting too, because Jennifer Aniston to me is like one of the most underrated comedy actresses, like in the world, and isn't yeah. giving credit for the number of strong, like times that she's been in, like things like The Office Space. You know, people forget that she's a part of that all the time. Oh, I agree, and. I, I'm not the biggest fan of horrible bosses, but she's pretty funny in that. Um, but you know, it's uh, and I don't like the Millers, but she, you know, when she's in these some of these things, she goes, she goes all out. I, sure, she does not hold back, and uh, yeah, she's great. You know, we I don't know if we've uh, we really haven't talked too much about like because I, I probably I don't know specifically what Wayne's biggest influences are, other than like. Annie Hall and Tootsie, I think he's mentioned uh, a couple of times. But for me, when I saw Wanderlust, um, the first thing I thought about was Lost in America, which is one of my top ten favorite movies of all time. And I was like, oh, you know, this is great, because the idea of Wayne sort of tapping into his inner Albert Brooks, really, that's just like the best of both worlds for me. Because I love early Albert Brooks comedies, um, almost as much as uh, you know, like the, the the pinnacle of Woody Allen films and stuff. So, you know, him taking on this idea of you know yuppies trying to find themselves and and feeling you know disconnected wherever they go or idealizing certain situations, particularly the uh, the hippie lifestyle here. Um, with Elysium and everybody there, I uh, it's interesting like how there are moments in this that I kind of relate to, like when he's playing the Spin Doctors, and then Justin Thoreau starts yeah. like you know soloing on the guitar. Noodling. Good yeah. God, has that happened to me? <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, there's there are just moments that kind of ring true in the midst of all this kind of craziness, like the mirror sequence and stuff, and. Um, you know, Alan Alda keep, keeps repeating the same names over and over again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
again, that that to me is more like a Showalter thing because like I I just remember Showalter going, I really love repetition and uh, familiarity when it comes to jokes and having them come, yeah. you know callbacks and all that stuff. So um, it, it it seemed like a good time for for Wayne to have a hit with you know Adam McKay and all that stuff coming out and. I just—that's the other thing too. I just—I want him to have a big hit. You know, I mean, role models at least did really well for him, to where yeah. he can do a wanderlust and still be okay. Uh, and again, one thing we haven't talked about in, in this entire conversation that has come up a lot when people are talking comedies, especially with Judd Apatow's films, is length and yeah. running time, because Apatow's comedies—they overstay their welcome. Um, yeah. Even my favorite. Wayne's do not. <laughs> exactly, and Wanderlust is it, it breezes by. It's under a hundred minutes, and it just it feels perfect as it is. Almost, I mean, there's certainly maybe a couple of lulls here and there, and a couple of jokes that don't work. But overall, um, it's one I can see myself, you know, going back to once in a while. Um, it's one I need to get on Blu-ray too because it does have the Bizarro cut and uh, yeah. a commentary that I need to hear still. But it's also one of those discs that you can find for like three dollars, like everywhere. Yep, sad but yeah. true. Um, but um, that's fine. <laughs> um, other little thing, like um, you got to talk about the giant fake penis because oh um, well, yeah. Uh, like all these comedies started having like okay, we're gonna have Jason Siegel and you're gonna see him full frontal and then Walk hard. popping up like walk hard and even observe and report we were talking about that oh yeah um and uh he actually david wayne did that in the 10 too there's like all the the nudists that were uh so there's all the yeah all the naked people that were running away or something like that like scattering <laughs> um uh but uh the thing that joel atrulio's character who's like uh a nudist and he's got like the giant this fake dick um, and there's a nice little uh, um, short featurette on that in the on the Blu-ray. Um, is that they never actually call it out? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just there, you know. And it's left to almost like make you wonder, like if it, like I think he's actually just intentionally trying to make you wonder if it's real or not because they don't mention it. Um, and uh, as opposed to like the overnight, which came out this year with. Um, Oh Adam yeah, I was Scott, just going to mention that. Where it's so very blatantly, are you know using prosthetics in both situ- in both on both guys, um, and uh, it's funny and it's a huge focus of the entire movie. But I kind of think it's it's funnier when it's just a thing that's there and, and nobody says anything. Right. <laughs> I, I, I I like the funny thing that nobody acknowledges is weird. Yeah, I think the only thing I can think of that still is grown tiresome for me in any comedy is the oh my god they're tripping sequence which at least in this it has a good you know payoff at the very end of it where she's you know on the tree and stuff but I just I I don't know I just feel like at this point kind of tired and played out when like oh let's just have somebody take drugs and have a you know um an acid trip or something crazy happening to them and then that's like you know a source of comedy for a few minutes and stuff and oddly enough though i think it did work in 21 jump street so i gotta um yeah i was just thinking that um uh both wayne as well as uh uh, miller and lord are the only 
people working in like film comedy that can use a lot of tired tropes but have it not feel so um you know yeah yeah just not it, it feels new again sure yeah like they're, they're finding a new way to not necessarily surprise you or saying so even say something about it but just um whether it's just in like the exuberance of the performance or just the presentation or visualization of it mm-hmm. uh it's not like you're you're suffering through through a scene and you know it's not appealing to the lowest common denominator right yeah well since um wanderlust made me think of lost in america which is a movie that i grew up loving and has gone on to be one of my favorites they came together reminded me of the zucker brothers and at the same time it's not a full-blown spoof parody movie it's certainly nothing like date movie or whatever um and like you mentioned it 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 sort of takes the the parody movie or you know a rom-com spoof and makes it feel fresh again and wayne gives it his own spin to where it doesn't feel uh tiresome or too ridiculous it's you can tell that they love rom-coms as much as they want to point out the tropes and you know have fun with them yeah well i think it's uh show walter really shining through uh a lot in this case um i don't know if you ever saw the baxter i love the baxter me too thank you yeah. That's actually the moment um, I also fell in love with Michelle Williams. So, <laughs> yeah, she's so sweet in in that movie. Yeah, um, and you can just tell. Um, and it's even there in uh, in uh, Wet Hot American Summer, the way that um, Margaret Moreau's uh, character at the end like just turns on Coop and says, you know, like, you know, like I'm a kid, you know, like, and I just want to like have a lot of sex, and I can, you know, you know, I like, can just, and he's really hot, you know, and just just walks away and just screws up, screws up everything and 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 he goes back to that a number of times and um kind of they came together whether it's like with the um Ed helms like her yeah yeah and uh just sort of like offhand things like of course she's got like a kid and the way that uh, he's appealing to that kid with um you know the magic trick so there's like a hamburger behind <laughs> his ear and <laughs> and uh uh And uh, how they're actually divorced, <laughs> and you know all these, all these, all these things where they uh, just completely, you know, just take a shit on everything. And then, on top of everything, oh, oh yeah, I think my favorite little moment just out of nowhere is the when he asks if she's free for dinner, and then it does the mega zoom into his face. <laughs> uh, um, uh, uh, you can't not um, call out. The point in the movie where it just completely upends everything, and it's the most, um, even more than the drug uh, drug scene in What Hot American Summer, where he completely goes into adult swim territory. Um, when they cut into the movie soundtrack, yeah, and breaks uh, the fourth wall Jones. totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a very Zucker thing too. But uh, that and the whole up the waiter's ass are the two most Zuckery things that he's ever <laughs> yeah. done. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Which I adore, and yet at the same time you have um, 
the great Christopher Maloney showing up again. Yeah. With, you know, kind of a random bit that some people will enjoy and some people be like, what does this have to do with... Why is this <laughs> in this movie? Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, a, that's a Wayne touch. And um, certainly, like, uh, just, again, they're kind of like head-scratching, but hysterical moments with, uh, you know, the subtitle moment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, when I... When I when I first saw this, I just kind of went, "This is exactly my cup of tea," and you know, I talked to people who don't get it and just kind of went, "Eh, it's not my thing. It's not funny." But I yeah. think you know, um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, playing with uh, we go back to like we were talking about playing with language, uh, and there's just weird words. I think this is this one does it way more than even any of the other things that were going on in his other movies. When you got like, why don't you take a dick, you hike? Um, and brands and nerbles and hamburgers, hamburgies and hot doggies. <laughs> the uh, eye tones, Rhapsody, Spandoga. And oh my God. Just, just all over the place. And I think my favorite of all like the um, kind of parodies of usual conventions that just kind of, there's two things that really like, that will actually ruin romantic comedies as far as like its insights at like typical things. The first one being the, uh, the group of friends that you barely ever see, like right. and, uh, each explaining what, what they represent. And then they all take a basketball shot and they yell swish, but none of them get it in. <laughs> um, and the other one being um, that New York, uh, New York city is like its own character. Um, mm-hmm. I remember uh, we saw uh, begin again, the, uh, from the director of Once, right. starring uh, yeah, uh, around less than a month after they came together, and all I could just think of the time it was just like, wow, because they literally, it's like a plot point that New York City is its own character, and they're going to capture that with their music, and it's what's going to make the album special, and and that thing is that movie's not even necessarily horrible, but because of its proximity that they came together, it was just poisoned, and. And that's just the power of some of these tropes, though, is that sometimes you can point out the obvious, and it's just like, yeah, that's right, who cares? Parody, in of itself, is kind of like, you know, mockery, but appreciation of those tropes at the same time. And, you know, romantic comedies, like, I can't imagine going back and watching something like No Strings Attached, which, when I first saw it, I was like, this isn't bad, I kind of like this, or Going the Distance, this isn't bad. I kind of like this. You know, and I I will admit that every now and then a romantic comedy will sneak in and I'll go, this isn't bad. I like this. And I'm not going to feel guilty about it. But especially when it comes to the circle of friends, man, I just remember in No Strings Attached, like you had like Greta Gerwig and um, Mandy Kaling and just like this set group of Natalie Portman's roommates that all represented one specific trait. So, you know, going back now and watching certain movies that this, you know, that they came together sort of mocks. But at the same time, Wayne and Showalter have gone on record and saying, like, hey, we like You've Got Mail. So, you know, it's making fun of it, but it's doing it in a loving way. Yeah. And uh, um, I kind of love people that. People talk a lot about 
when it comes to like say Edgar Wright's movies, how they're you know they're taking the piss in one way, but they're overall they're looking to be become an actual entry into the genre itself. Sure. And I wouldn't say that they came together uh, or even Wet Hot necessarily pull that off within their own respective genre takes. But I think that it's not, at the same time, it's not like, hey, do you hate uh, romantic comedies? Well, watch They Came Together and you'll finally uh, blah, 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 blah. I think someone, you know, I think They Came Together is more for somebody who actually does kind of like these, you know, cheesy or crappy movies. And it's more for them than it is for someone who's looking to see um, romantic comedy taken down a peg. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, there's no... Again, when you talk about very memorable moments and throughout Wayne's movies, um, when Michael Shannon shows up, good God. Good God. Because I think, like... He was filming something else at the time, and just uh, I think uh, Wayne and Showalter just ha- got lucky and had him for just a day, <laughs> and yeah. said, "Come on and do this without like seeing a script or anything." Uh, so yeah, and I believe that the sort of bookend with uh, Ellie Kemper and Bill Hader was not at all planned. Like that was that was like the last thing they filmed, because apparently when they showed the original version to audiences. They didn't get it. They didn't see it as a um, a parody or something. Like, yeah, it was weird. It was just like, I mean, I guess maybe they weren't familiar with their work or whatever, or they didn't know what they were getting into. Yeah. So uh, they sort of had to they... write this extra thing to help explain what yeah. exactly their intent was. If I were to cut anything from the movie, it would actually be those scenes. Yeah. Um, but um, there's a few points in, in those ones too that are really uh, I, that I really enjoy, like the um, Bill Hader talking about getting all up in that pussy or whatever like <laughs> that, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, or when they kind of call out that you know, like there's like scenes where he has with, with his brother that had absolutely nothing to do with their story together, right? But you know, like <laughs> just like well, that had nothing. You know, like why is this important to the narrative? But thing is, and they call it out like. You know, like uh, I don't know, but uh, uh, there was like I don't remember which one of what I was watching recently that it had that exact same bookmark, like before and after, like throughout the entire like romantic comedy, and it was like, like wow, this. You know, I thought it was shoehorn, but I forget that those bookmarks are actually everywhere. Yeah, I feel like I. Yeah, you're right. I feel like I just brought that up fairly recently. I don't know if it was on a... Oh, it was... <laughs> yeah, it was actually with Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, um, what? The, the original has a uh, has a bookend that, that was not like in the original book or anything that was sort of put in there to help the audience along. Because um, it was originally supposed to end with Kevin McCarthy screaming, you're next, you're next. But they sort of added on this extra bit to help explain what happened and put on a little happier ending, which is kind of frustrating. But anyway, I love They Came Together, and um, God, it's hard to make a top three from Wayne, because I love them all except the ten. <laughs> That's pretty much it. You know, I mean, 
Maybe I like one more than the other. If I had to make a top three, it would probably be... Uh, I'm going to go Wet Hot American Summer, They Came Together, and Wanderlust. I think that's that. I think that's pretty much how I would go. How about you? Um, yeah, I'd just go with you know Wet Hot, um, then Wanderlust, and then they came together. Cool. Yeah, I feel I feel really good about this. I think we brought up quite a bit outside of man. Wasn't that thing funny? So, um, we didn't really talk much about we didn't really talk about the uh, new Netflix series either. But, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, want I don't really to... know what you can have to say. I think well, it's still kind of new, and I don't really want to ruin it for anyone who hasn't kind of gotten there yet. That's kind of my. I watched feeling. it twice, and it was really easy to to plow right through. Sure. Um, and I want more. I kind of. <laughs> I want more, but things. What I want them to do is, um, you know, how in the first movie they talk about, well, let's meet together, let's meet uh, at nine thirty in ten years, and then it was just like, no, no I've got, uh, I'm busy that day, <laughs> you know, like, um, and then they have it for like, they have it like a, a two second uh, tag on that after the credits in Wet Hot. Um, I think they should just do that. I think they should um, mm-hmm. do the reunion um, day. I have a feeling and, that's and exactly they what they would that. do. And, uh, yeah, and just sort of take the piss out of being, uh, you know, older with those same characters. My... Do something that's completely mundane and not crazy, or right. them trying to capture being young and just failing. I would think that that's the direction they would go, because, I don't know, staying at the camp and doing more outrageous things in a day? Hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that would work a third time, but... I have a feeling with the reviews, since they were so glowing, and I have a feeling it was a hit. It's hard to gauge with Netflix if it, you know, got big numbers or whatever, but um, I imagine that as long as the whole cast is game again, I can't, I I bet Wayne would be, it would be very easy to do another um, eight episode season with these characters, and And I would love it. It would have to take place around 1990, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. So that would oh, have its boy. own sort of uh, new, fresh uh, thing. Because um, I, I don't know if you ever saw the Children's Hospital episode where um, they cure cancer. And uh, at, at the very end of the episode, it's a uh, parody of the credits of Do the Right Thing. Whoa. I got to see you that. Have it? No. All right. Well, look up, look up yeah, YouTube um, Children's Hospital um, I Cure Cancer. Okay. Um, and it's just all the characters like doing the dance sequence together with like the uh, the type graphics over top of it. Nice. And like this uh, original piece of music <laughs> that goes with it. But watch the whole episode because it involves Ken Marino jerking off butterflies because uh, butterfly semen uh, cures cancer. Um, oh. And it's, a, it's a, one of my favorite episodes. That and the episode where Mark Hamill is uh, a dolphin version of Hannibal Lecter. Who helped? No, that's a TSF. It's all running together now. But um, yeah, you got to watch um, those early, uh, the second season of Children's Hospital. First season, I think, is all just short web episodes. Yeah, there's so much to see, um, including the lost Stella shorts, which will never be available. Um, that's also a question I asked in that little film spotting clip, which you heard. Uh, <laughs> 
the idea of those ever being out in any form would it's impossible because of all the music rights uh, they use yep. you know actual songs pretty much in every sketch they did when you get to the greater universe of all of his uh, kind of people that he hangs with uh, do you have kind of a favorite whether it's like a comedy album or a, another TV series or project or web series wow I mean honestly those those ske- those, those Stella sketches that they kind of like shot on a I don't know, like almost on a VHS camcorder, or, you know, on a high eight cam or something. They're they're so explicit and vulgar and twisted and and dark and weird. Uh, yeah. There's one where Bradley Cooper plays the devil. There's one with Sam Rockwell playing a pizza man, which is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. In fact, I think like there's a moment where David Wayne has a fake black dick. And uh, Sam Rockwell, you know, he plays the pizza man, and he asks David Wayne, you got a tip for me? And David Wayne goes, oh yeah, I got a tip for you. And, you know, we see David Wayne's big black dick. And then the next shot is David Wayne giving Sam Rockwell, like, two bucks. (laughs) And to me, that, like, encapsulates that the kind of humor I love and what they do so well to like set up something that you're expecting and then completely subvert your expectations by doing something genuine and not disgusting (laughs) when you expect it in that moment like oh my god what are they going to do are they going to be fucking no Mm -hmm. so there are certain sketches from that like there's like maybe 20 of them in uh, total there's one that involves a cat there's there's just so much weird shit that I find hysterical from beginning to end. So I'm I'm very partial to those hard-to-find sketches, including one where they sing uh, Saturday in the Park by Chicago. Um, I could go on and on about those, those sketches because I usually show them to people and they kind of look at me weird when I, when I show them because they're so fucking weird. And uh, a lot of them are hard to find and in really bad quality like yeah. even if you torrent them they're like .mov files or something so for me I mean obviously when obvious what people might go to is Wayne Days but sure. of all things I would recommend people um, seek out um, it came from Ken Marino and Michael Ian Black specifically uh, and that's uh, Burning Love yes have you watched the, all of those I've watched a season. I need to watch more. I right. love There's it. There's three seasons total. Um, the first season is um, the ba- it's like a parody of The Bachelor. Right. Um, and the second season is The Bachelorette. And the third season is, um, I guess there was a thing called like Bachelor Pad or something. I never ever saw an episode of that. But it's almost like a Big Brother kind of show where they oh, brought okay. back the yeah. most favorite the best characters of the first two seasons of right. Burning Love, as well as ones that existed in other fictional seasons. That, that could be Bachelor Pad or Bachelor in Paradise, I think, yeah. Okay. And um, they're all competing for like <coughs> like $800 or something. <laughs> or, or is that $100? Like, it's like an almost like, it's like a nothing amount of money, and they all have like these big hopes and dreams for it. And um, And one of the characters is just a fan of the series, <laughs> who's just starstruck to actually just be there because he's like recognizes them all from different seasons and they cover every sort of type you can imagine and some of the stuff that they kind of do involving 
like Kumail Nanjiani's character specifically, and um, and it's also a really good showcase for a lot of um, uh, women in the LA comedy scene who normally don't get like much of a chance to do much, uh, <clears throat> including like uh, June Diane Raphael, who's like the focus for the second season, who's just um, amazing. Uh, you got some of the Party Down crew who show up, um, like that one guy who was in Party Down that was also on Veronica Mars. Uh, oh yeah, and, he's, and, he's uh, great. Yeah, just, um, yeah, it's 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 great, and you've got a couple other major celebrities with like tiny cameos here and there, but uh, but um, that is one to watch. They put that out on DVD eventually, and I had to scoop those up because I don't know. I I can just watch them as if it's like its own like a movie, you know. I should do that too. I will. I think they're uh, on um, they're, your recommendation they're on Yahoo or yeah. 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 Your recommendation is a lot easier to find than mine. <laughs> but if you're nice to me and if you send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail dot com, maybe I'll send you a little surprise, a little treat. So, Corey, this was awesome. Um, Thank you. I. Th- can't thank you enough for being on the show uh <laughs> i'm almost tempted to end it with hey cory thanks thanks you can say that again <laughs> hey cory thanks um yeah i just God, that love again. that movie um so yeah you're gonna have to be on again next year for sure um Yes, Whether we'll if it's for a, a, a music co- comedic yeah. director or music or whatever you want to talk about, I'm, I'm game. You rule. Um, we should do something completely different, like like a music video director and review music videos. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. I do like the Michelle Gondry collection or the Sonic oh. Jones. <laughs> yeah, that that Bjork video he did for Bachelorette is fucking amazing. Right. Oh, I can I'm talk gonna, about that for hours. If we do a music video collection, I'm, I'm calling uh, dibs on that. Then I do want to. You know what? I'd like to do. God, we'd probably have to do. It'd be hard to just do one, but I'd love to do Mark Romanic. His music oh, videos yeah. are great. And um, if he had more, Chris Cunningham's are pretty up there too. Yeah, all those work with the director sets. Um, mm-hmm. I wish they made more of those. They had they had planned a few other ones at the time, but uh, they just weren't selling. I wish they would put them on a Blu-ray. Yeah. Absolutely. So, where can people find you, Corey? Go ahead. <clears throat> okay. Alright. Um, soundtrack of Your Life is uh, available at row3.com um, after uh, a hiatus for various reasons. I'll be back very shortly with Lindsay Ragone to discuss the soundtrack to Dazed and Confused and that'll be a lot of fun that's one of my favorite movies of all time Mm -hmm. Um, definitely my favorite Richard Linklater movie even though there's a lot of competition there and uh, I uh, can be found on Twitter at at Corey Pierce Art if you just wanted to follow the show feed um, it's at this is your OST and uh, yeah um, that's all (laughs) That's all, folks. All right. Well, our next episode, we're going the complete opposite direction. Uh, I believe Bill Ackerman, one of my favorite uh, returning guests, will be joining us. 
to talk about director Paul Schrader. Um, kind of the antithesis of David Wayne. And um, we'll have some interesting things to say about, uh, well, hardcore American gigolo. Maybe even the canyons with Lindsay Lohan. Who knows? <laughs> so, yeah, that'll be the next official episode coming up in a couple weeks. Until then, visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Um, and follow me on Twitter at Instant Jim, as well as Letterboxd at Instant Jim. So we'll be seeing you in a couple weeks for that Paul Schrader episode. Thanks again, Corey, for being on the show. No Thank you. All right. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>